Today, we'll talk about how can one keep their continence, urinary continence, after surgery for prostate cancer? What are the right techniques? What are the right screening approaches for prostate cancer? It keeps changing. It seems like no one is on the same page. Today's conversation is with Dr. Keith Kowalczyk, is the Physician Executive Director of MedStar Health Urology, Chair of the Department of Urology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, and Chair of the MedStar Robotic Surgery Service Line. His clinical work is dedicated to research and primarily focused on improving and standardizing surgical techniques. He is funded by the National Cancer Institute and by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Dr. Kowalczyk, as a leader in the field, actively participates in health services research, including studies on cancer treatments, patient outcomes, and healthcare economics. He has contributed to numerous peer-reviewed articles centered around the important subjects in prostate cancer. We go into it at a deep level with Dr. Kowalczyk, different approaches. How do we screen? What's the right approach to have better and best surgical outcomes when surgery is needed? This is my conversation with Dr. Keith Kowalczyk, Chair of the Department of Urology at MedStar at Georgetown Hospital. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where is my intention, my goal, my passion to help you improve your prostate health and live better with age. You heard about our guest today, Dr. Keith Kowalczyk from Georgetown MedStar. Is that right, Keith? Is it MedStar Georgetown? Georgetown Med- MedStar. Yeah. It's MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Excellent. MedStar Health. Thank you. I yeah, seem to get the those. build up. <laughs> I need, we need to get the branding correct. Ex- so. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> thanks for Medstar, being on. MedStar Health. Delighted to be here. We've talked about this for a while. So. I know. And then you had a, uh, what, a broken foot or something from skiing and we <laughs> held everything back. Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I, a fairly severe break of the leg, which is is now fully functional. So I had to congratulate. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I was like very much post op and I was like, I don't think it's gonna happen. <laughs> By the way, congratulations on you are the permanent chair at MedStar Georgetown University. So that's a big deal. Congratulations yeah. on that. Yeah, thanks so much. It's an awesome opportunity. It's a great place. I'll be honest, I went to medical school here, yeah. residency here, fellowship in Boston, they came back and so it's fantastic. We've got a fantastic group of people. It's a great opportunity. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to build the program. You know, prior to us recording, Keith, I always say, look, I was not a pre-med person at all. And then I, then even during my, my four years of college, some, sometime uh, sophomore year, so I think I want to go into clinical. I was in a healthcare administration major. And I just, I don't know, the calling to say, I want to do something clinical. And of course, I got very much into natural medicine. Um, and then I did training in that. And then I did training in urology. And I kind of combined everything to do everything I do in urology. I learned as a uh, while you were at Notre Dame, your, your major, uh, it wasn't necessarily pre-med. It was, uh, what is it, history and film or something? Well, tell us a little bit about that. How did you get into medicine? I- So medicine was always there in the background Mm. and you go through high school and it's like, well, what am I good at? What do I like? It was always biology, sciences, things like that. I grew up in New England. Mm -hmm. I had that period where any kind of coastal kid wants to be a marine biologist. So not a Boston Red Sox uh, professional baseball player, not necessarily. I wasn't that good. (laughs) Um, I was great in Little League. And then at Babe Ruth, uh, yeah, once those kids started to learn how to th- throw curveballs, I couldn't hit it anymore. So, <laughs> no, maybe I tried football, but I was at a school where the Hasselbacks were the quarterbacks and I didn't hit my growth spurt maybe until college. So that didn't happen. <laughs> so, yeah, I had glasses and I needed to read a lot. But, yeah, no, I went to Severian Brothers High School and God bless that place. They made me study. Uh, I, I wouldn't be where I am to, if I didn't go there. So, anyway, sciences did that. <laughs> To the point of your question, sciences was always there. I just, look, sometimes you take the path of least resistance. Mm. And I knew I wanted to do science. Notre Dame is just such a great school. 
they, as I was saying, they do have pre-med programs that you can be a biology major, but they're also like, look, this is four years to learn. Um, so they have what's called an arts and letters pre-professional program where you can major in the humanities, arts and letters, but take all the basic requisites for pre-med and still get all of the, the guidance you need to, as a pre-med. So I originally came in as a history major in a film at, because as we were talking, I wanted to be Ken Burns. I did love, I loved history and science. <laughs> do you ever meet uh, Ken Burns? or anything any interaction no i wish he would sure blow everyone out of the water in that conversation as far as how much that Man, guy knows. you mentioned that and how we led to ken burns is because we were talking about the, his documentary on the civil war and the documentary on baseball and it's like god everything he does is such so well done and here you go you wanted to be you wanted to be the next uh, the next ken burns i don't think i had the chops i mean the, the amount of work that goes into it and i just again path of least resistance i saw that wasn't gonna maybe happen. you do a documentary I, I the on the history of urology with ken burns or something i would love to do that. I mean, I love the history of all things. I read a ton of history books. As I said, my Friday night last night, I stayed in and watched Lincoln. Love it. It's what I do. Well, my wife's had a time. I get to watch these movies that she would never watch. So uh, that was what I did last night. But I love the history of it all. Yeah. I'm a history buff as well. Do you own the book of Hugh Hampton Young, his autobiography? I should. I didn't even know he had one. Oh, it is. So Hugh Hampton Young, for the listener, is, I don't know. the. Uh, the He's like the, he created urology, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the urology subspecialty. Particularly I mean, the it, first prostatectomy at Hopkins was in 1904. What a wonderful book, Keith. And I think that... I think think you'd love it. Well, yeah, the history of medicine in general, there's one uh, called The Butchering Art, which ah. is incredible. Yeah. And it was about how surgeons were looked on in the 1800s. They weren't looked on as real doctors because surgery just wasn't possible. Are they barbers or something? Uh, yeah, they used to be. I mean, that's why the whole steely tie, or what is it, Sweeney tie, yeah. has, they're good at with the knife. But they're, that's why they're called mister in England. Ah. The surgeons are called mister instead of doctor. Because it's like, and the first chapter of that book is, I think it's a cystolithotomy, an open stone removal. Mm. And it's just brutal to see how far surgery came. Um, but yeah, Hugh Hampton Young, I got to read that. Because, you know, back in the day, a surgeon did everything, right? It, you just, whatever you could cut, and subspecialties weren't a thing. They weren't a thing. That's right. He was taught by Halstead, who did remove breasts yeah. for breast cancer in a very brutal way, by the way. And he's like, look, all surgeries were brutal. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If you can, if I can remove a breast, we can figure out how to remove a prostate. So, it's, it, so yeah, I'll, yeah, I recommend it. Speaking of what is it, the butchering art, which is definitely not the case anymore. I always say no. that as a non-surgeon, I am in awe with what you guys can do. I mean, because I follow those guys, right? So they, I have a pre-surgery protocol with nutrition and exercise so that they have better outcomes with incontinence and so forth. So they see me beforehand. They get the surgery done. Then they see me for a year after that, more or less. I'm in awe with how soon they get back to their normal life with what you guys do. Yeah. It is an art. It is a skill. And I tell patients who, of course, patients come to me because they don't want to get opened, right? They're like, no, tell me I don't need surgery. And of mm -hmm. course, it's very individualized and some people do. But the bottom line is, I said, look, I don't want to be opened. <laughs> and perhaps I'm, if I have a bias, it's not in, in surgery or getting a surgical procedure done. But let me tell you, it's remarkable, yeah. the outcomes. I mean, it's, you think of surgery, you think of the worst, you think of what you've seen your family happen or how it happened to your family. And now a lot of the men we're seeing with prostate cancer have parents that had prostatectomies and had bad outcomes if you didn't go to a high volume surgeon, especially when you're open, you had to be really good when you were open, someone like Patrick Walsh or, and other people. And things have, look, you st there's still a lot, the surgeon still matters, but, and sure, there's a lot of a cart before horse with robotic surgery, but I think we've, the horse has caught up and now we're taking the robot, the new technology in so many places to make, it's amazing. I mean, we're sending these patients home in the same day. Are you doing that, Keith? I had Adam Kibble from, I always say Brigham and Young, but... <laughs> Brigham and Women's, man. That's my, another one of my alma maters. You can't get Adam's the, the lead guy. He's Come great. On. He's great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you know that, but he published, or he was one of the authors on a paper on lifestyle medicine and lowering the risk of people with genetic risk of advanced prostate cancer 
lowering the risk of mortality mm-hmm. through lifestyle medicine. He was one of the authors with that. I was like, oh, wow, Adam, you are involved yeah. with this too? It too, Bruce? It, all that stuff matters. Like you, you can't just be a surgeon and be like, well, here I am for two hours and less and your prostate's out and that's it. Well, who's treating, what I say is who's treating the microenvironment, right? Right. And in my opinion, um, hopefully somehow I can prove it one day. I think that if you treat the microenvironment, there's a lower risk of recurrences, in my opinion, after treatment. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll take in any anything from anywhere that can help anything I, I will, am accepting of. So, yeah, I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope so. I think yeah. I hope so, too. Why I mentioned Adam Kibble is because when I referred a patient to him. And he said, he says, Gio, if I do them in the morning, they could go home that same day. I say, that was the first time I've heard of that idea. So do you do the same? I do. Wow. For the first case, almost always. And it it took a while. I tried to, Ronnie Abaza is the one who really championed and has showed that this is safe. And, you know, you try to do it, but you need everyone on board. You need to let the patient know ahead of time that is a possibility because if it's in the patient's head that they're going to stay overnight you're kind of surprised them the same day oh you're going to go home that doesn't work out yeah you need anesthesia to be light um you need the post-operative nurses in the recovery room right they're not hitting the floor so those nurses need to be bought in Mm. and and walk them around and they've all been wonderful in this last year yeah i think 95 percent of my first start prostatectomies go home the same day we don't do narcotics. There's been a lot of work on non-narcotic pathways. Mm-hmm. It's just not necessary. So you counsel the patients. You know, you're going to have some discomfort. It is surgery, but thankfully, it's with the small incisions, it's not that bad. It's, and we do give you other non-narcotic pain medicine. and we're not going to let you be in pain. And I, more often than not, it's this reaction that you were saying. Like people are shocked at how well they do after surgery. There's a risk for everything, right? So mm-hmm. it's rare in robotic prostatectomy, but anything you do comes with risk. But we just do so many of these. And if you go to someone who is, is well-versed in not just the surgery, but the pre-op, post-op management, it's not just a one-day thing. It's very, very doable. And even the second case, sometimes we're starting, to, it's a little bit harder. You need institutional buy-in. Um, Keith, I look at you and I'm looking at you, right? I'm like, okay, if I'm a patient, I go see Dr. Kowalsik. Man, he looks young. And I'm thinking, I need to see some gray hairs for this guy too, dude. Ah, you gotta look. You gotta look hard. You gotta look a little hard. You sure? You sure you didn't die those? So back in the day uh-huh. when I start first started in urology about 18 years ago, and I'm not gonna mention his name because you would know him. But this guy was young, but he's a, he, 18 years ago. He's a ro- he's a robotic surgeon, and back in the day, it was like a new thing, and he was just trying to bring up his volume. He literally dyed the side of his hair. <laughs> gray yeah. to make himself i've heard stories i've heard those you stories. probably even and know what i'm talking about actually yeah um, i've heard that story i don't remember from who but i mean that i never had a beard ah, before okay. i was in attending i was close shaven and then it was between fellowship and and going into being a faculty member at georgetown that i started to grow a beard and i'll shave it every once now and that you have chair before your day <laughs> it really helps quite a bit and i've been like it's my 13th, 14th year on faculty. So I've been around for a while, but that's an understandable struggle in the beginning. And exactly. I, I even, your Apple, your phone shows you your pictures from five years ago now. And it's nice. It's like, you remember that. It's like, God, did I age that much? <laughs> trust me, if we put like a side by side, I, I have aged. Now, and now as permanent chair, I think you're going to be like Obama when he became president. Well, that's what <laughs> I, I was going to bring that up. I think if you bring up like my picture from 2021 to now, you'll see the differences. And that's where the gray hairs. I have patients, long term, long time patients that will comment on it. And maybe kind of tease me about it so for the listener who's not viewing on youtube dr kowalsik just looks very young and he he has a a few little strands of gray but not something that it's more in person you know it doesn't (laughs) quite shine in the video but so uh, i was gonna so i would look at you and say this guy's young and probably not as experienced but you've done quite a few of these of prostatectomies how many you think you've done i always tell patients look and actually that's unfair because a lot of people that I know are you know good with their numbers, but most I said most surgeons would give you thirty percent more than they what they really have done. So oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I mean, intuitive knows all of that, but it, it, as on my own as a faculty member, I'm at I'm above eight hundred now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you take into you know, I did I think five no three three hundred during training. Mm-hmm. I kept talk so I'm, that counts. No, that counts in your total number. 
I, yeah, I mean, I think maybe you have that, right? So it's, here's the thing. I mean, you had plenty of papers, everything evolves. You have plenty of paper in the beginning where it was just, Ash was doing thousands and Vip Patel was doing thousands. Mm-hmm. And what is the learning curve of robotic prostatectomy? Well, this was 20 years um, when nobody had any training. I mean, those guys were the true Marines first in and had to teach themselves everything. And mm-hmm. we're lucky enough to ride on their coattails. So I had robotic training as a resident, and then I had way more of as a fellow with Jim Hugh. And so I, that's what I tell people now is that learning curve. You don't see those papers anymore. There's, it's certainly there. And there's certainly, obviously, the volume outcome relationship is strong. What's the learning curve key, the key? So how many? So I had somebody I aqua if, ablation for BPH. Mm-hmm. I had had Chris Kelly from our department at NYU. And he said, look, um, and I had um, Galnick from, at U, from UW, Wisconsin, talk about whole lip. So I had all these BPH conversations. And my, I always want to know what, what's the learning as somebody comes to you. And so, f- for example, with aqua ablation, uh, Chris says, after you do like five, you're good. And so it's a. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, what is it for, uh, for a robotic prostatectomy? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I, it's not a thousand to two thousand that used to be quoted. Exactly. It's but it, it's certainly, look, how. Patrick Walsh always gave his talk on, he changed his technique, I don't know how many times over the years. So, and that that does count. I have obviously changed my technique completely, literally 180 degrees on top of its head mm. because you're always changing. You can't, you always need to look at ways to get better. So that's where, if you, it depends on what the outcome you're looking at is. What is the learning curve to remove a prostate safely is one thing. I would say I was ready to do that after residency. Mm-hmm. I could get, and hopefully outcomes would be okay. Probably not. I was able to remove a prostate very well, safely, quickly with good outcomes after fellowship because I just did so many. And so that was after 300. But then when you're on your own, you're learning things every day. Do you know, you need to, you get big prostates, oddly shaped prostates, this and that. You need to be able to recognize that anatomy and that only comes with time. So truly, I don't know. I mean, learning curve studies are hard to do. Mm-hmm. Ask Andrew Vickers about that. But I would say, and this is a guess, the 200 to 300 range, you're probably going to be at least be able to get fairly good out. And 200 to 300 um, gauge right out of fellowship or 200 to so. 300 after fellowship? Either way, I would say after fellowship, because as a fellow, you uh, and I'm, I, I'm not knocking anyone who hasn't done a fellowship. There's plenty of very good robotic surgeons who have done this on their own without fellowship and have experience. But fellowships where you really get the hands on, you know, you're a board certified urologist at that point. So, you know, you get to do more of the surgery. You have someone, the deliberate practice, as they say, is real there. It's not only are you doing three cases a day. You're I, Jim, who again, who I keep mentioning, amazing mentor and friend now at Cornell. He was with me at Brigham and Women's, and he was so deliberate in telling me, the scissors go this way, and now you must record and look at all of these videos at night. So I did. So pretty much every case I did, I watched, Mm. and I dreamed. I remember the way I went to bed. This is so dorky. I don't think I ever told anyone, but... I remember those days living in Charlestown, going to sleep. My my (laughs) room was right by the highway, Mm. so it was hard to get to sleep. And um, I would literally... The highway became... The highway noise became white noise, right? It did. But the way... Instead of counting sheep, I would take myself through the steps of Jim's prostatectomy. It was that I lived, breathed prostatectomy. And of course, I did other cases as well. But just what did I do here? What did I do there? And the other thing I learned is follow your outcome. You, you don't know what you don't know. And I was religious in getting Epic scores from all of my patients. So Epic quality of life scores, because that's what I was taught by Jim. And I have them in my own maintained database. And I could look object semi-objectively as this guy was young. Why, why is he not you know recovering his continence as fast? And I would go back to the video and I, I couldn't tell, but I say, well, maybe I'll try this next time. So if you're, you don't know what you don't know, and you need to be continually evolving. Um, so that's where, it, again, the learning curve to be, get, getting good outcomes, I think, is not as long as you think it is. But the more you do, the more finessed it becomes, the more you realize there, what did I do that was right? What did I do that was wrong? And you do learn new things and get better and better. You know, if, and I really took what Dr. Walsh's talk says. He changed his technique 2,000 times wow. throughout his career because of the same thing. And he was doing video review before robotics. You know, you have, it's a craft. And um, so 
That's a very no, long non-answer. I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. You, it's good. Well, I you think, said like yeah. 300, actually. And again, this is I'm not going to hold you to it, but just from your experience also, I think it's- From my experience, yeah. yeah our residents coming from Georgetown, um, between myself and Jonathan Wong and, and our other faculty, they do so many, or at least part of and watch so many of our cases that- they're excellent on the way out without fellowship. You know, you know we, I talk to them. I give. They still get in touch with me afterwards on tips and tricks. And what's amazing is that they're now doing the pelvic fascia techniques too. And it's it's fine. I'm 13 years into being a faculty, and now my people I've trained are now you know, above. They're well beyond their learning curve. And it's just a beautiful thing to be able to see, like, I kind of helped you out doing that. Well, that's part of the legacy a little bit that you leave, although you still, I mean, look, you're in your mid 40s. I keep saying you're so young, but I mean, you are. But to our senior, I had Eric Klein on. I was like, these are our senior members in urology. So we're we're there in the, we're still Gen X, right? I barely made Gen X. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> I, you were I, almost I, a millennial if you would have just if you would have just no. <laughs> been born a couple of years later. If you bought Nirvana, never mind in the record store while Nirvana was still touring your Gen X, <laughs> right. that, so that that's me. I have unironic Nirvana shirts in my closet. So <laughs> I'm Gen X. I hope that a lot of so my audience, a lot of lay people trying to figure it out. What should I do? I just got diagnosed. Things like that, yeah. or curious. I hope enough people, I hope enough surgeons and physicians hear this as well because I think you gave some really good advice and tips as to how to go about it. I love the obsession that you had when you were a fellow, which I think that's important. That was, I mean, Jim, who again, I keep mentioning it, but that was all him Mm -hmm. watching a pros pro do it. I keep thinking of football analogies. Aaron Rodgers watched Brett Favre, right? So, and, uh, and I like neither of them as a Patriots fan, but (laughs) exactly. Although I do feel very bad for Jets fans right now. Anyways, yeah, no, that was Jim. And that's what I try to have my residents do. It's hard as harder as a resident because you're trying to do everything. Yeah. Um, but when you're a fellow, yeah, all the fellows, you need to be recording your cases. You need to be reviewing what you did right, what you did wrong. In these things, I don't want patients to, to worry. I mean, all, these cases all go well, um, but it's these minute details, especially with prostatectomy. It's not removing a gallbladder is not the easiest thing. There can be disastrous consequences doing that, but it's pretty much you find the cystic, you find the right duct, you find the right artery take all bladder out, they're not going to have functional outcomes that are affected like you do with the process. How do you handle the nerve bundle? How do you stay away from the levator ani muscles? How do I dissect out the urethra without being traumatic to it? Like my, my goal is to kind of go in and just remove the prostate and the cancer and whatever's in, and get out like, like a burglar. Like nobody saw me leave everything as much the same as you possibly can. Yeah. The ninja, the ninja prostatectomy, maybe, maybe absolutely. we can trademark that or something. The ninja I, surgery. I would love that. I mean, I, as a kid growing up in the eighties, watching those ninja movies, <laughs> I did take karate for about two months. So I'm almost, there. <laughs> you're almost there. Mama, I got one yellow stripe on my white belt before I told my mom, I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> Keith, who I want to be the patient again a little bit and kind of give something to the listener who is the patient or will be the patient and is trying to figure things out. How would I know? How can I know? One of the things that I think I do well with my patients, um, sometimes, yeah, they're looking for holistic approaches and lifestyle approaches, and I give them that. But also they're looking for me to kind of give them guidance and help them decide because it's very confusing. If I am going to do surgery, how do I know who I do surgery with? If I, if, and then of course, there's many other options. So, how can a patient know who you, know, you versus, I don't know, anyone at NIH or any of your competitors or any? Why would I do it with you versus them or them versus you? It seems like everybody's experience. It seems like everybody has done tons. It seems like, and that's why I went back to the young looking thing is like, is that something to go by? The answer is I don't think so because some, you can still be very experienced and very good. Sometimes maybe is it a possibility that the guys have done, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000? Do they get a little loose with it after a while? And they say, well, you know, since I've done so many, I could do this with my eyes closed. So they get a little not at attention to detail. How do you go about it as a patient? 
It's, yeah. And I tell this to almost every, one of my first lines to a lot of patients I see is welcome to the rabbit hole that is prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And the good news is you're hopefully if we got this in time, you're going to be okay. The bad news is you're going to get so confused. Um, And that's where you just have to, you have to put the time away for prostate cancer patients because number one, do you even have to treat it or not? Right. And then that's a whole com- number two, before you even get to that, you have to describe our convoluted grading and staging and all of that, which is complicated, good, very detailed, but complicated. Uh, but to your point, how do you, who do you pick? You pick, so through all of that, then you pick surgery. Then who is your surgeon? Experience absolutely matters. And look, I do think the robot has definitely leveled the playing field. Mm. If you were in, in open days, Sure, the high volume open surgeons had equivalent outcomes to the early robotic surgeons, um, but they were you had to be so very skilled uh, at open surgery and open prostatectomy to to get great outcomes. Now the robot, I would say, the average robotic surgeon can get just as good outcomes as a higher volume. Maybe not as I don't want to you know insult anyone doing the open. Uh, well, there's um, <laughs> who's out there. Well, other than my boss, well, they're mostly retiring. Uh, other than my yeah, boss, and I want to respect my right. boss, of course, the Herb Lepore. He and he, he does them really well. Um, of course, and that's what I tell. Very rarely, early in the career, it was open or robotic, right? And we had these plenary sessions arguing, and and that's just not so much an argument. It's the surgeon, and I tell people I use her as an example. And it, now that Dr. Walsh is retired, it's like if you go to someone like Dr. Lepore, you're going to have a good outcome. Because he's good at it. He's done so many of them. The robots level the playing field and you know, has let those who are not gifted as Dr. Lepore to still ha- perform a very good surgery uh, with very good outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, but to your point, it, it's a reputation game, I guess. You do have to look, I would say, at people that if you have the ability that are actually publishing their outcomes for truthfully publishing their outcomes because it, that not many people do that. Yeah, who's publishing their uh, again is very confusing. Reputation. Uh, I, well, how do I know your rep is it if you went to what? Harvard medical school versus that doesn't make right that's not it. So no, how do I know your reputation versus the other guys? You can't and it's so unfair. And that's where it, is there a rating system not, anywhere? <laughs> it's like I don't know. No, I mean there's coaching and then within surgeon there's there's lots of coaching now and sharing of techniques which is fantastic to kind of equalize that. And I think we're getting there but you just don't know. And so I would say number 1 is look at how much training they've had. I don't think it doesn't matter what the name is. Little name residencies probably have higher volume than a lot of big name residencies. Mm So you can't judge on that. But if they've done extra training in fellowship, then that's, they are probably have more experience doing that. There's also many natural surgeons. There's no way of you knowing that can do very well without fellowship. But I would say that the playing field is not completely equal. There are certainly surgeons that are very, very good, but most people will get a good outcome. So that's where the holistic approach I think comes in is who is going to talk to you and be truthful about what could happen after the surgery? What, how truly, what are your incontinence rates? It's a loaded question when you ask, what is your sexual function? I'm (laughs) brutally honest with that. It's not going to be the same for most men, unless you're in your forties and have lowers prostate cancer that we don't operate on anymore. In your defense, Um, let me say this. Again, I see a lot of these guys post, right? In your defense, I would say this. A lot of it depends on how their ability to function before the surgery. So if you have type 2 diabetes and hypertension and you're a 2 out of 10, it's not going to get better. Um, So despite of age, from my experience, Keith, it depends on ability to function beforehand. If you're at 8 out of 10 prior to, you have a huge chance and opportunity to getting back on it and being sexually functional after surgery. Of course, knowing you and the surgeons that I know, right? Because I know you know you do a great job. The other things I tell them, look, a lot of it depends on your partner, um, your part, your ability with your partner to engage. And you know, it's not you can't go into the bedroom thinking I'm going to hit a home run. You go to the bedroom with your partner and say, look, we're going to engage. We're going to have some fun. Maybe have a glass of wine. And if it happens, if it doesn't, and, and kind of have that approach because you don't want to overstimulate the sympathetic nervous system because it, it is a stress right. stressful response. And then lastly, I typically say. Um, uh, you got to get the continence right, right? Because if you're thinking incontinence, urinary incontinence, and you're thinking, I'm, will I leak in her? Then that's going to all bets are off. So I, I think your outcomes are better than the ones you are better than what you think. <laughs> 
I know my outcomes. I publish my outcomes. I'm just, I just want to be fair. I'm not trying, I'm not here. Not everyone can, you know, go see, you know, high volume surgeons. So I'm just trying to be fair to that. So what are your outcomes that you've published? Well, continence. So formerly known as retzia sparing, now pelvic fascia sparing prostatectomy. Actually, we're going to go over that. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to go over Yeah. Continence, look, there's a lot of surgeons that don't perform this approach and that's perfectly fine. I'm not going to go into those details. But in my own hands, it was an immediate game changer in terms of continence. About 50% of patients that I operate on are continent immediately. How do you define you know, continent? A week. Zero, pad, zero to one safety pad. I publish both. So it depends on the paper. And I don't like binary outcomes either. This is where the EPIC score comes in. Mm. Like what is your overall urinary bother score because there are some men out there that wear zero pads, but they leak and they don't care. That's right. And there are some guys that are completely dry and wear three pads just because they want to. Yeah. So, but unfortunately for patients, that's the easiest way to, to define things. And that's what, you know, a lot of editors have asked for is percentages of continence rates and that's hard. So, but the overall I use, so use both of those definitions. So patients can see brutally honest. What are the two definitions again? No pad use at all versus zero to one pad. So all comes, you know, I have a rolling database. So it, this includes guys that I operated on two weeks ago. So it, it's all comers, all stages, um, but zero pad use is 80% for me. And zero to one safety pad is 99. And I don't, I, it's the bother scores matter too. Like you said, there's more to it. And that's, that's a rough definition with zero to zero to one pads. If you look at the actual overall urinary bother scores, they're better than baseline. Like you said, baseline is what matters at going in. So what I've published is even two years out, my patient's overall epic scores, which is a measure of bother, actually improve. Like they're one, one year out, two years out overall, they're better. And that's for various other reasons. Their obstruction scores get better. But it, like you said, it's... Yeah, it's about baseline outcomes uh, and how good you are going in and what is your overall bother. Um, And that's more of a holistic approach again. So my epic, the epic scores are, they're good. Zero to zero to one. How far, how long after the the procedure? So with the median time to continence for zero to one pads is 30 days. The median time to continence to zero pads is 70 days. So Mm -hmm. Generally, I tell men, look, 50% are lucky. The other will probably get it by three months. Any idea? And it's rare. I used to, having anyone with more than two pads is upsetting to me. I mean, that just, yeah. that just doesn't happen. I haven't needed anyone that's needed corrective surgery. Oh, lovely. That's amazing. Because as we talk about sexual function, all bets are off. If you cannot hold your urine, you, you cannot even right. think sexuality. Well, that's been the unfortunate, I shouldn't say unfortunate, but the side effect of doing this approach is my patients come in at their four to six week visit and they're completely dry. And even though I tell them erectile function still six to 12 plus months, their first complaint is always, I'm only getting partial erections. I'm like, well, hold the boat, zero pads. One hundred percent. And I'm like, ah, oh, I've set myself up for this. So, so when patients it, come to me, so sometimes they come to me for like acupuncture, post-prostatectomy with the idea that it can help stimulate nerves and blood flow in the air and it possibly can. But when they come to me three months out of prostatectomy and they say, look, I, I want to talk about sexual function. I was like, or they would say something like, Dr. G, I'm, I'm still not functioning sexually. We're having the sexual conversations three months after yeah. an organ was removed out of your body. It's good. Wow. Yeah, high us, five. Right? Because yeah, we used to just be talking about the pad use at that point still. And that's gone. High that's five. For, for most that's people. a great conversation. <laughs> yeah. So you get excited, but then at the same time, it's like, yeah, I get it. It's a bum- it, This is going to take a little while and there's no guarantees. And so you get lucky. I have 75-year-old patients that had high-risk disease and unilateral nerve sparing that have like erections within two months. And then you'll, you know, your 50-year-old who takes a little while. But again, a lot of that is, it's a very subjective thing. Um, and we try to make it objective with things like Epic Score and Shim, these quality of life questionnaires. Because even though qualitatively the erections, in our opinion, might be good, it, if that patient perceives it as a bother, that's the bottom line. So is this what you expected? And the expectations now to, to get erections earlier, 
look, I, I try the hardest as I can. And a lot of that, again, depends on the ability to nerve spare, certainly, and what their baseline function was and management of expectations. Absolutely. Keith, you're saying 30 days out and then 70 days out and your outcomes from a urinary incontinence perspective is very good. How, there's a lot of 70-year-old guys out there would have never had a prostatectomy that have urinary incontinence. How does that compare to the just a normal guy who you never had anything, but, you know, again, they start having some incontinence? You mean the age difference? Yeah. Or, like if you do a yeah, surgery, so you know, yeah. That's what, you know, look, you used to be above 70 radiation, below 65 surgery, in between, flip the coin kind of thing. Yeah. And now, if look, there's 70-year-olds that certainly have 10 plus years life expectancies that run marathons, 75, 76 years old. And I, early on, I would be nervous about those continence outcomes. Not that they, mm -hmm. they can have the surgery. Now I have no, prostatectomy is on the board if they want it. You know, of course, radiation is not a bad option either. You got to be, you, you give them the honest talk. They need to discuss with everybody, but I no longer steer. If they're healthy and they want surgery and they're, I would say pushing 80, that's very rare, but you know, certainly in the mid seventies, mm. surgery is definitely still viable because these men are continent now too. You know, that was my main concern in the beginning was, you know, with older patients, the continents did take a longer time. They're equal now. Mm. And actually Jim and I are combining our outcomes and looking at that hopefully to publish soon. Amazing. On, on a prostatectomy on older men now with robots. The thing is that older yeah. men, these are guidelines that if they're above 70, years, 70, 70 something years old, not to screen and so forth. Right. <laughs> Who are these people? Where are they coming well, from? Because the 70 year old guys I see, the 70 year old guys that uh, people out West see, they're surfing and they're in great shape and they can live <laughs> yeah. to like. So, uh, so there's always an asterisk there. Um, well, number one, many of these guys are in active surveillance. Mm -hmm. So you still follow those guys afterwards. So but a screen diagnosis, you're right. You're, the guidelines say over 70. It's it, it's a loaded question, right? I think if you're over 70 and unhealthy and your PSA has always been less than two don't worry. And you have no risk factors, then don't worry about yeah. it. But yeah. These surfers and all this. like Above 70 dude, you, chronologically or biologically? Those are two different things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they deserve all the options that anybody else has. Think so, and, yeah. um, and that's when you discuss, especially, look, if they have a high risk and 10-year life expectancy and they come into their 70s with a high PSA already, mm -hmm. That's where, look, there's room, there's wiggle room there, but it's a, it recommends stopping screening for sure, except if men have a higher PSA or it, it, there are certain guys that I think are exceptions to that. I think in general, it's bad to screen. Yeah. Over 70 for sure. I'm not, I hope not to get my PSA after 70, but. You might uh, be there again. You might be in really good shape. And, and I have a, I have to have somebody in their eighties that I said, look, you need to stop. He keeps getting his PSA. Actually. This guy, he, so I said, look, uh, I said, all right, so he's 80, God, he's 82. So this is what I do, Keith. I said, all right, you want to keep getting your PSA. All right, let me see you sit on the floor and get up from the floor. So, hmm. you know, this particular guy gets up. I was like, holy cow, like he's pretty yeah. good, right? Because that's, that's hard to do yeah, as you get they, older. What if, what if they can't get up? You're in danger. <laughs> if you can't get up, no more PSA. Yeah. But, that's a, but I'm thinking most of these guys can't. So he gets up, no problem. I said, all right, give me five push-ups. <laughs> he gives me five push-ups and then in the middle as he's giving me the five push-ups he says i don't know if you remember dr geo but two years ago i was showing you happily that i'm doing all these push-ups with my knees down and you said nope just give me one or two with your knees up and just keep doing and now he was as he's telling me this with his knees up doing push-ups he did like 10 or 12 i said all right well, yeah, i was gonna say uh, 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 i would pop out an extra few for you exactly to, i was like all right we could, that we could get a psa on you then that's fine <laughs> It's shared, you know, shared decision-making because a lot of it is also how are you going to react to that elevated PSA? Um, we do have psychological factors. Now. Yeah. Yeah. It, look, it's just, you, we, I do discourage screening in the guys that clearly are unhealthy with low PSAs, but it, there's a lot of gray area there. And it, it, beyond just checking the PSA again, how are you going to react to yeah. that? Let's not panic if it's eight and it stays eight, if it makes you comfortable, let's just keep, I'll keep watching it, but it's going to take a lot for me to get a biopsy on you. It's going to take a lot for me to do any kind of treatment if we don't, well, I treat them like anyone else when they're diagnosed, but 
you just can't have knee-jerk reactions to PSA. It's yeah. not the days of before when I was a resident, one core Gleason 6, that would be out next week. I haven't upgraded on Gleason 6, I think, in eight years, so good, which is a good thing. You know, Patient-stimulated anxiety, right? That's what PSA stands for? Yes, for sure. But that's where we come in. Yeah, that's exactly. like that's our job. When I hear people come in that are obviously active surveillance patients and they're scared because they've just been told they have cancer, um, you know, we can get into that argument. No, I have. I don't, uh, no, we're not. I have. Gets, yeah, get Scott, Scott Egner coming on in a few weeks. I'm and, a Scott supporter. I'll yeah, just put it that way. Yeah, I have and, Scott Egner coming on in a few weeks, and we're going to cover that. Which actually, another, Dr. Kibble, skier. That's right. <laughs> Dr. And, Kibble uh, said, no, we need to call it cancer. And then hopefully I get Jonathan Epstein to uh, for his uh, discussion on it as well. well look, I already know what, how that discussion <laughs> will play out because I've seen it. Right. And, and they all have legitimate arguments. If you're looking at Dr. Epstein's biological definition of cancer, okay, it's there. And here we are going into it. Right. But as Scott will tell you, there's not one documented case, or Matt Cooperberg will tell you, there's not one documented case of Gleason 6 being metastatic. I think there's one case report, but it was uh, like a high volume and they missed a high grade. So it was on biopsy. But so is it, that's is a, it, loaded is a, lo question. Is a loaded question. <laughs> Keith, you have a specific approach in your, with your approach with the robotic prostatectomy. You called it the Ritzius nerve sparing approach. For, number one, tell us what's the name, or the actual name of yeah. it. And number two, what exactly is it and how does it compare to everyone else? So it's no, well known as Ritzius sparing prostatectomy. And the technique was first described in Milan, Italy, Aldo Bocciardi, and now my good friend, Alfano. Um, essentially, it's going behind the bladder rather than on top of the bladder. So it's difficult to do, but- So you explain this to us in a, even to me actually, because I'm a non-surgeon. So what's the difference on top versus lot. the bottom? And, and does everybody, everybody else does what versus what you're doing now? So the common, the Retzia space, and we can get into the naming later. I call it pelvic fascia sparing now because that's more descriptive. It makes more sense right now mm -hmm. is that in that space named after that man, are there's bladder, you know, suspensory ligaments, there's urethral suspensory ligaments. There are structures that help with incontinence where if you look at anterior reconstructive papers and things like that, they're reconstructing those structures that most people go through to get to the prostate. So most, the standard approach is to take the bladder, detach it from the abdomen and get to the prostate from the top. If you avoid that space altogether and go underneath, you're preserving all of those structures within the retzius sparing within the retzia space or what's essentially the pelvic fascia. It's not the space that you're sparing. So that's number misnomer number one. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we call it pelvic fascia sparing prostatectomy. And because of that, you're, none of those ligaments are, they're not affected at all. Now, I don't have an answer as to what exactly le leads to this, but very consistently across all studies, this has shown that men recover their continence faster mm. and are much more likely to not to be continent in all together. And so the minute you try this, it's not an easy surgery, but it is more difficult. You're working in a smaller space because you're behind the bladder. You're literally looking upside down. So it's kind of like looking at your car and, you know, the standard approach, you, you open the hood and look down on the engine while I'm the guy that's on the little trolley underneath kind of working on the engine from below. Yep. So, so you're a little thrown off. There's definitely a learning curve, but once you start doing it, the outcomes, subjectively are immediate. Your patients are so happy. From a um, continent level. They're continent so much faster. Yeah. It, but has that been played out? It, all of the series, including mine, they're, they're, mine's a perspective database, but none of them are randomized, controlled. So, you know, people say, you know, at a year, the continence is the same in some studies. But my, when I, again, I was talking about EPIC scores, the EPIC score changes, the quality of life overall is, is superior. And for me, that's at two years. I'm trying to get that published, but it's hard to do new things sometimes. The other concern that people that would do the standard approach have legitimately is many of these studies have shown higher focal positive margin rates. And that's because unfamiliarity of the anatomy, um, but also it's an extreme radical 360 degree nerve sparing, essentially. Like you're not just nerve sparing from 
where the nerves are behind the prostate, you're now doing it on top of the prostate. So that is a possibility, especially when you're first starting. Now my my margin rates are exactly the same as they are standard. Now there definitely, I think, is a learning curve, but what that has not translated to is, is the bottom line is there's no difference in recurrence rates. Nobody's shown that. And when you look at, you break it down by grade and stage, there's no difference in positive margin rates either. So a lot of that is is disease driven as well. And the, look, the ultimate thing is, and I'll compare it to a defense. It's a, you might have a, a bend but don't break defense gives mm-hmm. up a lot of yards, but no touchdowns scored, right? The score is low. Well, if you have a few more focal post positive margins, but that doesn't matter in the end, which it doesn't seem to, to do, then you know, the main thing is the patient's now happy and they're still cancer free. Mm. So, but we need more work to do. So that's why we're, I'm a part of what's called the partial trial uh, with Jim Hu, with Ted Schaefer, with uh, Moa Law. Is Jim Hu doing uh, this approach as well? He is. They're doing a little bit of a, uh, so there's also now the anterior hood approach, which is also pelvic fascia sparing, which Ash Tawari described, which is doing the same thing, but going from a, a more familiar approach. We don't know if that's the same or not, but it has shown promise that if you just spare all of these ligaments, by either approach, it works well. Um, for so just to be, look, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's fine. It's whatever makes people do this. However, it makes it, however it's approachable. In my opinion, it's a great surgery. But again, we need we don't have long term outcomes. We don't have head to head outcomes. We do need that data, and that's why we're doing a randomized trial to look at the standard. So I'm a patient. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is what I had a conversation with my colleague and friend, Jim Weissach, because sometimes these conversations, exactly how you just described it, is how you would describe it to a patient. Now, this is the benefits. Look, there's a prospective study outcome that shows that it's beneficial. There's no randomized, and the patient doesn't care about any of that. The patient cares about you helping me with my situation, getting the prostate, getting the cancer out of my prostate, and for me to have normal and uh, normal as possible optimal optimal functioning after the surgery. So for me, I don't care about the randomized trial. You do this nerve spray. Okay, who else does this? Okay, that sounds reasonable to me. So where do I see? It's almost like where do I sign? Because it's important. It's important to understand the patient's perspective. They're scared. They're, they're probably not even listening to half of what you're saying. Like I tell all my patients, bring your oh, spouse no. with you. Bring somebody Absolutely. else with you. And, and I always tell them you're not making your decision today. Sometimes they're ready if it's like they've already seen a bunch of people. Yeah. But, you know, especially when you're first telling them oh, you're not making a decision today. You might have someone come in and say, just take it out. And I'd say, okay, I'm okay with that. But you need to see everybody. We're not or just you're in the information gathering stage now. Absolutely. So who? So the other. So so there are a few surgeons that are doing. Um, is it, uh, does it have a certain name already, or is everybody doing so, sort of the same thing but using different names, just so that people know what no. to ask for? It's pelvic fascia sparing, retzius sparing. Again, I'm trying to go away from retzius. I'm not. We can discuss that later if you'd like, but. Pelvic fascia sparing to me is, you know, there's two approaches. Again, you, hood technique or the posterior approach. And again, I, look, I'm a scientist, Geo. Exactly. I don't want to go out there and say that. I know plenty of surgeons that do the standard approach and have excellent outcomes. I'm not, I don't want to go out here and say that this is, I found the golden egg. I haven't, um, but it's certainly worth studying. And what's um, the difference? Again, your opinion has been had, no head to head studies is okay. In your opinion, what's so the difference is, in time between the uh, pelvic fascia sparing technique and just a regular technique in terms of how fast and quickly someone becomes continent. Yeah, no, we published that. I mean, it's like I said, within 30 days versus something like 120 days. And so it's much faster. That is in all of the studies. The counter argument as well at three months, six months, whatever, you know, in a lot of series it combines. But what I say is if I'm that patient and I don't have the leak at all versus three months, I don't, that matters. Yeah. You, you can't just say, well, at 12 months, it's all going to be the same anyways. Well, that's a long year of leaking. And I shouldn't even say it. Look, again, standard prostatectomy still has excellent continence outcomes. It's not. Yeah, but I want it's, it's faster. Com- it's comparing good to good. Keith, <laughs> yeah, I, I here's what I want. I'm the patient. Remember? I need to be a scientist here and say I'm agnostic. <laughs> I'm agnostic. I, I'm agnostic and not biased, but I, this, this technique is a whole lot better than everyone else, but I'll be agnostic. I, I perform both. It depends on whatever is good for that patient. It, truly, if you're in the beginning, if you go to someone who hasn't done a lot of these posterior pro- pelvic fascia sparing, 
<clears throat> Retius, which I don't want to say. I forget my point. It was a good one. But <laughs> I had a good one. Uh, well, you were talking um, about being agnostic. Maybe that was right. Of, yeah. No. So if you're new in this, again, if you have an anterior top of the prostate tumor that is a high risk tumor, you know that's the area where your focal margins might happen. So. If you're early on in the learning curve, you probably don't want to do that approach, right? Because the number one thing is get rid of the cancer, especially in high-risk people. I, I've done enough where I'm very comfortable with doing it in all patients, but it, I don't know if it should take over everything. It's kind of like focal therapy. There's high food, there's cryo, there's laser, but they, they each kind of treat a different portion of the prostate. You might not be eligible for high food, but you can get cryo. This is uh, this retius sparing approach could be just another tool in the bag of us, you know, to be comfortable doing both depending on where the tumor is and personalize it. I think young patients will have good continence no matter what the outcome is. So if you have a young patient with a high risk tumor anteriorly, I'm getting way too into it. I'm being very political as well. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> right. Right. No, look, yeah. I want, I'm looking at it from the patient's perspective. And I said, I, what I want is as much as much debulking of the cancer as possible a b i want yeah. to get back to who i am and how i function now as soon as possible that's what well, i want. that's exactly right it, it, so you can be cancer free but leak everywhere and especially with prostate cancer that should be unacceptable not a good trade-off uh, for me a, it's a curable disease yeah so that is number one i'm comfortable that i can get all of that cancer out and number two Look, especially I was a patient this year. Like you said, I broke my leg. I was non-weight bearing for three months. Mm -hmm. That was a miserable three months. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's not incontinence, but time is slower when you're recovering. And um, that matters, right? I have patients, thankfully, much fewer now with focal positive margins years out that their PSAs are undetectable. Uh, their cancer is gone um, and they're happy. You know, that's their back to their normal activities, back to their normal life. And that matters, really, really matters. And if they do have a recurrence, which again, we have not shown any increased risk of recurrence, which is the bottom line. But if they do have, a, we, it's unfortunate, but we can still treat that. Your overall survival is going to be very, very good. But let me again say, we need a randomized control trial. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's not, look, I guess I also live in this world. So as a natural doctor, naturopathic doctor, I, in the beginning, I've been in academic institutions since day one, Columbia, then NYU. So I'm like all about the science. It was like, I have to, I don't have, I don't have a lot of wiggle room here to be like, oh, this, put this little stone in your head and your prostate cancer will be gone. I have to be science-based. And I think that was a good, good thing. I was challenged and, and it's a good thing. Um, then I'm thinking, I was like, at the end of the day, I just put myself in the shoes of a patient and I'm 50 now. So I see a lot of unfortunately 50 year olds with prostate cancer now. And I'm like, what would I want to see? I mean, and I don't care about the randomized trials. I care about how can you help me because everything can't be proven. What do we wait 10 years before we know that this technique is better than the other one? I don't want, I don't have that luxury. Right. So I want to make a decision yeah. now based on this in, on this information. So I, I dabble now in, in both in the practicality of what we do and as a practitioner and also in the science is kind of an experience. This is why I always ask yeah. you or anyone else, what's your experience? It's OK. That is well, not okay, that yeah. you might be a little biased. As I, every, I tell my patients, of course, they feel like every surgeon wants to do surgery or radiation and college wants to do radiation. I said, look, they should be biased. They've worked on this technique. Look at you. You were dreaming of your prostatectomies for probably years. <laughs> so yeah. you should think that this is the best thing for everyone who, has, who needs a, a treatment. I want you to think that. Well, yeah. I mean, and the whole story of me starting to do this is a bit interesting, too, because it was, like I said, you don't know what you know. I, I started following my EPIC score outcomes from day one. And my patients were doing well, but it's when you're there in the clinic and seeing them at three months and six months and they were happy, but I was just like, they should be wearing zero pads. What is going on? Mm. And it, when I was a fellow, Gaston in France published complete anterior preservation. And actually in 2011 is when this approach was first, um, that was when I graduated fellowship first uh, published by Antonio Galfano. And I, I, my, my curiosity was peaked. I wanted that, but I was also building up my practice. Mm -hmm. I was like, making sure I could do this, this surgery safely and on my own. And thankfully, I, to give me a fellowship, I hit the ground running there. But you, I didn't want to change my technique right away. Mm -hmm. So it was in 2018, I had been looking at videos and videos and talking to Dr. Galfano in Italy. And I just, I took the plunge and I did it. Mm -hmm. And it was because 
I wanted a better outcome for my patients. I just knew it could be better. Mm. And because I was listening to my patients, I was following their outcomes. And then the first one was the easiest one I've done. I think if you look at my times, it was just like the perfect case, which doesn't always happen. Mm. You know, maybe like an hour and a half. And I'm like, wow, that wasn't hard at all. Guy was continent at catheter removal. So after that, I was hooked and I haven't gone back. I literally have not done a standard since then. So, um, and it's because I was listening to my patients. Now, I don't know if I got better. I don't know if it's the technique, but certainly my, after 2018, I talked to everyone about incontinence. I am brutally honest with expectations, but I'm, uh, we're always very pleasantly surprised and very happy for how, how well our patients do afterwards. And I love it. Keith. It's a great feeling. It is. It is. It, it is. This is, look, Everybody thinks that you, got, you guys can get paid tons of money. I, it's not that. You could have done many other things and made 25 times what you make now. You really care about patient outcomes, at least you, people that are even being on guests on my podcast. I know you guys very well. I know everybody has a different approach. So you care. You care. And I, I appreciate that. And your patients yeah, too. I mean, it's, I, this is why I kind of fell into medicine is helping patients, helping people. And you don't see it right away. You're, you're bogged down by your electronic medical records and all the paperwork we have to fill out. Sure, that's a problem. But at the end of the day, when you see, especially when you're over 10 years in and you start to see these guys 10 years cancer-free and they're so thankful and you realize how many people you've impacted. And I'm only starting to appreciate that now. I like to diminish that and diminish my importance. You know, I don't want to pump up my own ego and doesn't need that. Yep. It's seeing that how well and how you, 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 you're able to touch people. It's a privilege to, to for people to pick you to take care of them. And, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you re over the year, you grow with these patients and I've grown with these patients and um, it, it's, that's, it makes it so worthwhile. And like I was saying, also being in a residency program, like gr growing up and seeing these residents grow from students through residency and now they're doing it on their own. Um, so being an academic physician, it's seeing how many, it's, it's what, what do you bring to this world? And you're able to bring so much. And uh, it, look, we're, I'm not never going to complain about my life and how much I'm paid. We're paid well. It's it, don't worry about us. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. It's, I'm not gonna you, be probably you can say that too, because it's, it's also important. It's important and I'm, it's deserved. I'm not going to get into that. Certainly, like you said, a, a ton of ton more things I could have done and make a ton more money. I don't care though. Like, look, I have a happy life with my wife. I love what I do. Uh, and that's what matters in the end. Of course. And, and we're, we're paid well enough to do good things in life um, and to enjoy life. So people, I have a hard time, it, loan debt, all of that the real thing. I have it and I'm lucky enough to be able to pay it off um, slowly, but surely. But um, that's not why I got into it, man. I just, it's nice, yeah. but, and sure, my, my investment banker friends are flying their, flying me on their, uh, are flying their jets. What's, to a, what's a good now. life to you and to me <laughs> and to everyone else? You have to define right. that and see what, what that's about. Um, first of all, it's uh, on this Saturday morning, there's football games happening. Notre Dame is probably playing somewhere and you're here with me. So I want to let you know that I appreciate <laughs> you uh, being on the podcast and any final words. Uh, thank you. And this is an honor for me to be on here. I think we met each other through a mutual patient long ago mm -hmm. um, and you, it's just been great working with you uh, and just how passionate and kind you are. Hey, look, that's urology, but just a lot of great people. And yeah. I'm just happy to look, I, for me, this is just a fun Saturday morning conversation with you. And I guess that's my, my final thought is thank you, Gio. It's been a blast. And for everyone out there who is being diagnosed or in the prostate cancer quagmire, it's very confusing. Don't feel alone, reach out. You'll find friends uh, that will tell you what they went through. Um, and I guess one thing we didn't touch is, is don't make a rash decision do all of your research and and you should be fine and always know as you've heard me say before um prostate cancer is actually an opportunity an opportunity to do things better to live a better life to reevaluate your values and to do more things that are healthy for you extra things that you've held off because you know i have a ton of patients that they get treated and all of a sudden yeah it kicks them lets them leads them to a healthier lifestyle and look it's my job and my colleagues jobs to make sure we get you back to that original lifestyle and thankfully we have people like you that are aiding us in the aspects that we don't know enough about so it's a true team approach and i'm just glad to that you've made me part of your team absolutely thanks again <music>
Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. (laughs) It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.